The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And so I've been tasked with covering the next line, the wonderful line of the creed, which says, He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. Um, I'll say this was definitely a challenging portion of the creed, um, given that it comes with some confusion and some misunderstanding throughout the church's history, and understandably so. And I remember being a student at my church's youth ministry, being a middle schooler, just being exposed to the Apostles' Creed for the very first time. And I remember this line, even then, stood out to me. And that might be the case for you today as well. Um, And so, while we consider the creed to be helpful to us, uh, we don't hold it. We don't hold to it as authoritative and final as we hold with the Bible itself. And so what is helpful is that we don't take this to just be a literal picture of Jesus going into and coming out of hell. This is perhaps because we have a shallow view of hell itself. And so just diving right into it, we often picture hell to be fire and brimstone. We, offer, we, we often use hell to colorfully describe something, something otherworldly or shocking in our lives that we run into. Or some people use it to describe the weather of Tucson in July. Um, But understanding Jesus descending into hell, what that means as a creed states, is much more comprehensible when we begin to understand the weight of our sins and the punishment that is due to those sins. Great way to start today, right? Um, Because we have sinned, we deserve to pay the penalty for our sins. We have a reservation in hell because of our sins. And it's not fire, it's not chaos, it's not injustice, or whatever your generic picture of hell is, that is the worst aspect of hell. But the worst aspect of hell, I think, is the permanent separation, the eternal separation from us and God. John Calvin also endeavored to understand and explain the Apostles' Creed as we're doing together And he wrote, Is it not a terrible and a miserable abyss to feel oneself forsaken and abandoned by God, to receive no help from him when we call upon him, and to expect only that he has already plotted to ruin and destroy us? I mean, you see that the true torment of hell is that eternal separation from God, our Creator and our Lord, knowing that he's against us, disassociated with us, because he's holy And we have sinned. And when we say Jesus descended into hell, it means that Jesus takes our deserved place. It means that the Son of God himself took on the punishment that we deserve in full. And so this by no means, if you are a Christian, if you have been a Christian, this is not a groundbreaking truth. We've probably all heard and understood this truth at one point in our lives, that Jesus took our place, Jesus took on our punishment that we deserve. But with all the earthly temptations and trials that Jesus faced, even through being mocked, through being beaten, and stripped down in scorn, it's not until the very, very end where we hear Jesus express such extreme extreme pain. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The most terrible horrendous, excruciating torment of hell that's awaiting him 
that God does not dwell, that God has turned his face away. And it's this torment that Jesus bears. So Jesus' descent into hell can be simply understood by realizing that we deserve to be there as our punishment, and yet Jesus, as our substitute, takes our place in hell and instead prepares for his people a place in his kingdom. So that's probably a cheery way to start the sermon. That's probably enough hell talk. Um, and funny enough, I came across an article that was published yesterday, last or sometime yesterday on Gospel Coalition, that gave an overview of recent studies on evangelism, Christian, Christians and evangelism, and how we are hating our neighbors by dismissing the doctrine of hell. And so I hope that we're certainly not doing that today. We don't want to dwell too much on that either, though, because there is a second part of that line. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. And that's actually an incredibly difficult thing for modern audiences and probably past audiences as well to grasp because that also defies all logic. It defies science. It defies common sense even that someone would rise again from the dead. And so I really want to stay true to our, our, our series title here, Everyone a Theologian. We're really going to dive into kind of what that means for us um, so that when we delve into such difficult matters of doctrine that we can understand the essential details, pick that out, and joyfully affirm our beliefs as stated by the Apostles' Creed. Um, and so with all that said, let's turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31, to help us put this into context and put this line into context of the scriptures. It's Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. And it says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, And you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, 
if someone should rise from the dead. And this is the word of God. Now, what we have here is a parable. Jesus often taught in parables, um, often spoke in parables to express truths and realities of his kingdom. And we have a particular interest in this parable, given that our line talks about Jesus' descent into hell and resurrection from the dead. And this, this parable seems to give us a glimpse of what the afterlife might look like and what the afterlife interactions kind of, it, it, what, what kind of happens and unfolds there. And so this is obviously a parable that Jesus is telling. Um, and we hope to better understand and affirm the creed by looking into this scripture. So f- by doing so, we want to we proclaim what the, what the creed states, that I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It talks about death and descent into hell. And so our text, I hope that it unfolds for us what the death and resurrection of Christ does. The death and resurrection of Christ shapes the way that we understand humility, justice, and faith. And so we'll go through that through this text in those three, three attributes. Uh, firstly, the death and resurrection of Christ shapes the way that we understand humility. Humility is often seen as a virtuous trait, not just among Christian circles, but everywhere. And often in the church, we like to talk about humility as Christ-likeness. While this is true, none of us at the same time want to be humiliated. So there's a key difference there for us sometimes. And to be humble sounds great. We can be self-sacrificial. And we really try to flee from temptations of all self-boasting. Um, I thought for the longest time, as someone that does, that does music week to week at a church, um, that what being humble meant was to shut down any and every compliment given my way. And so if you say, great job today, no, 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 that's not me. Great singing, no, stop that. It's not about me. And I, I took that to the extreme, just said like, oh, no, 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 thank you, no, thank you. And I didn't know how to take that well. But turns out that that's not what humility is really about. So as I grew in my faith and as I matured, I thought I grew in my humility as well. I learned to graciously accept those compliments while still giving glory to God. Um, And I matured in my faith and understanding that worship wasn't about me after all. So that's what humility looks like, right? And we often stop there. But I think the Bible goes a step further. Jesus goes a step further to be humiliated. I mean, when I picture humiliation, I picture bathroom-related accidents in second grade or you know, finding a piece of spinach stuck in your teeth at the end of the day. You look in the mirror, no one told you. Um, and I don't quite equate these embarrassing, embarrassing incidents that you are humiliated by necessarily to humility. Often our concept of humility is filled with even-keeled temperament, lack of self-boasting, at peace with oneself, and we leave no room for our humility to include humiliation because humiliation seems like weakness. Our society has no room for weakness or frailty. We're told that we need to be physically or mentally, or emotionally, or all of those, strong and tough in order to succeed. Well, 
in our text, we come across a, what seems like he's a very successful man. He turns out he's a very rich man, clothed in fine linen, clothed in purple clothes, meaning that he had access to very, very expensive clothing that was reserved for royalty and luxury. Probably a super high thread count and just very luxurious. And not only that, he feasted every day, it says. Not, not just simply that he ate well, but he ate well every day and he feasted, meaning that he literally celebrated like a party every day, sumptuously. I don't even use that word. But he ate like this, like there was a party every single day. And in contrast to this rich man, we see Lazarus. Not to be confused with the brother of Mary and Martha that Jesus raised from the dead, but a character in Jesus' parable that he gives a name to, surprisingly. Um, And he's laid at the rich man's gate, He was covered with sores, and disturbingly, he seemed to be in such pain that he couldn't move. He was immobile. He would just lay there, and dogs would come up and lick his sores. I mean, that's just so filthy. And while the rich man was feasting every day, Lazarus ate whatever scraps he could get from his table. Whatever he was throwing away, he wanted to eat. And you talk about humiliation Lazarus is the picture of the lowest of the low, at least in this parable. All the while, his name, I mentioned that he's, he's uniquely named here, and it carries a significant meaning, which is perhaps why Jesus names the character, but not the rich man. And Lazarus means that God has helped. God has helped. I mean, think about that. God has helped, supposedly, this man, but this man is starving and this man is sick and laying at the gate of a rich man's house. And the fact that we're not given much detail of either of their lives other than that, we're given that name and that's about it. Um, we, we're meant to see that God has helped one of them and not the other. And so we're told that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. We see that for Lazarus. Though God has helped him, humiliation was a dominant part of his earthly life. It's hard for us to really grasp this kind of humility. We don't see this as being humble because this poor man's earthly life seems so miserable. We attach it to suffering and it becomes something else. But you see that humility is not separate from humiliation. We wrongly picture humility that means that we'll ultimately come out looking dignified. But the picture of humility that we see in the scriptures, we see through Lazarus, is that true humility necessarily involves humiliation. We know this because of Jesus. We know that he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And we Christians say, of course, that's who Jesus is, God incarnate. But this is such a difficult thing for non-Christians to grasp, especially those coming from other religious backgrounds with other deities, to picture that 
God would become a man. This is a hindrance for many people. Um, I'm thinking of people coming from Islamic backgrounds that are considering or thinking of Christianity. They look at this and say, this doesn't make sense. It's terrifyingly humiliating that a God would become a man. They would rather deny the Trinity than to consider that God would do such a thing. But that's the true model of humility that Jesus models for us, that he would take such a lowly form and die the worst, most humiliating death to be obedient to the Father. One of our deacons, our brother Bill, pointed out to me during this week, during a conversation I had with him about this line in the Creed, that the Apostles' Creed itself is chronicling a descent God's descent and self-humiliation. So if we take a look at that, it says, God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It opens with that. And then it talks about how he's conceived and born as a human being. Then he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And then he descended into hell. And so Jesus himself undergoes the worst humiliation ever in order that he could take our place in sin and stand as our representative in resurrection. Jesus' descent into hell is a portrayal of the spiritual reality that Jesus has taken on the fullness of our sins and to, to be able to pay the full penalty for our sins. Not only are we united with him in this death, that our sins are atoned for, but Jesus is raised from the grave to show that he has conquered over sin and death and that death could not hold him down. And we are united with him as well in this resurrection so that we too would not be bound to death. So Jesus' descent into hell paints for us a picture of humility far more costly than we could ever bear. And Jesus' resurrection shows us that humiliation is not the end, but that God will help us, that it shows us that we have a certain hope that has already been secured for us. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shapes our humility as it ought to be, lowering ourselves to the posture of a servant that is fully obedient through the worst suffering, through the worst pain, to endure because we have hope because we have life in Jesus Christ that he promises. And as God has helped Lazarus in this parable, Jesus has helped his people through his own humility, and he calls us as his people to live in the same way. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shapes our humility in that way. Next is the death and resurrection of Christ shaping the way that we understand justice, God's justice. The parable told by Jesus is said to be very familiar, very similar to an Egyptian tale and perhaps a few other Jewish variations of the same story, all with different characters, slightly varying plot lines. But the overarching idea is this reversal of fate, this poor guy becoming or going to a happy place and the rich guy going to a hellish place. And that seems to be sort of the plot line of these similar tales of that time period. But even so, Jesus' parable stands out because it lacks something. 
because it's missing something that all the other parallel stories, fables seem to have. And it's these extra details about these people, the rich man and the poor man, how they live their life. The, when we look to Jesus' parable, it omits a lot of those details. It just talks about one man's circumstance and the other man's circumstance. We're told their name, the poor man's name at least, then right away we're told that they died. There's no part that they are given to show that they earned some sort of merit, that they earned their way or lost their way into heaven or hell. And that's one thing that really stands out about Jesus' parable for us is that we make note of God's justice here. It's not dependent on our moral or immoral living. There's no detail in this story that leads us to believe that either of these men lived a good or bad life. What we do observe in the parable is some insight into why they are where they are through Abraham. He says, Abraham says two things in this parable that helps shed some light on God's justice. One, he says to the rich man, well, you had good things and Lazarus had bad things. So now he's being comforted and you are suffering. This is maybe too straightforward. Maybe it's a little difficult. It was a little difficult for me to understand in light of how we're talking about God because it sounds like Abraham saying, if you have a good life, then you'll have a bad afterlife. And if you have a bad life, then you'll have a good afterlife. And it just seems like a direct correlation. But if you notice in verse 25, he says to the rich young man or rich man that your good things, and he affixes the good things to the rich man, implying that he had, cho- he had a choice based on how he spent his time and how he spent his money. Mm-hmm. And so there's, this, there's an idea there that this rich man was choosing to spend his money, choosing to spend his time in such a way that completely, totally ignored God and God's revelation. And in contrast, Lazarus seems to be receiving generally bad things, but it's not affixed to him directly. It's not affixed to him, attributed to him, implying that these bad things were out of his control and we see, that th- we see this to be the reality of our lives as well, that bad things happen, and we struggle with why do bad things happen. And we see here in the text that while the rich man chose his own life over the scriptures, the poor man just endured the bad things that had befallen his life. And what God's justice, the glimpse of God's justice that we get as the resolve of the story is that it brings us balance, that it gives us a sense of finality, that there is an end where all things are restored and where, where things are given their proper dues based on bad or good. And so that is one thing to note about God's justice. He does care about good and bad. But the second thing that Abraham says here is that there is a great chasm fixed between them a great chasm has been securely fastened between what seems like the bad place and what seems like the good place and where Abraham and Lazarus are and where the rich man is. No one is allowed to cross this chasm. Between those things, 
those two things that Abraham says, what we're to understand is that God's justice is absolute. He exacts justice on Lazarus, who is only known the bad, and he gives him good as one that God has helped. And inversely, the rich man, who has known all the good that he could buy with his wealth, is met with anguish. God absolutely judges these two with a great and immovable chasm between them. But the rich man really helps us to put all of what I just said into perspective because it is still confusing, even as I'm saying it. Um, And he first says, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. Could you just send Lazarus to give me a few drops of water? It's really hot over here and I'd appreciate it. Rather than to ask forgiveness, I just want a drop of water. And there's just this deep-seated superiority that we see in the rich man that he wants to send Lazarus to do these things for him. And after Abraham tells him no one can cross, and he says, well, okay, then could you send him to my father's house? I have five brothers, and I just hope that they don't end up here. And so I'm pretty sure if they see a dead guy, they'll repent. But again, he's expecting that Lazarus will be the servant to go, to be sent. And so he has this sort of unrepentant, deep-seated superiority. And he's also implying there, well, maybe if I knew better, I wouldn't have ended up here. So the least I can do is let them know, warn them, so that they don't end up here like me. The rich man has yet to, and he doesn't in the whole parable, to recognize his own sin, to come to repentance. He's doing what he can to better his predicament, maybe with a drop of water, and yet repentance is not on his mind. What we gather from this is that Lazarus is a much better person than the rich man because he seems completely unrepentant. But no, we don't get any information about who Lazarus is. Lazarus is equally equally sin-filled. And that's, that's the reality of humanity, that we have sin that is deep, deep within us, that is deep-seated. And it's, it's independent of these two characters and their moral contributions. It's not a comparison of the people that God has helped, but it's whether God has chosen to help or not. And so God's justice is completely independent of our actions because without his help, we all fall short. All of us, Lazarus and the rich man, fall short of his glory and are both destined for hell. But however, with his help, we receive the righteousness of Christ who then will judge us to be righteous. And so, yes, God does care about bad and good. But the answer is we're all bad. We all have this sin within us. And so the parable is meant to show us one character who has received God's help and one character who has not. So how does the death and resurrection of Jesus shape our understanding of God's justice? The Apostle Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, he was, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, if you believe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
and you're able to confess that as your Lord, and you're, you will receive God's help that he offers to his people. God's justice does not change. It's absolute. It's final. But our standing before God and before his justice shifts from guilty, permanently guilty, to innocent through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, in fact, our understanding of God's justice stays the same. But what the death and resurrection of Jesus does for us is to bring us into the light, to bring us into his marvelous light, that we would be forgiven of our sins, that we would be seen as righteous based on behalf of what the Son has done for us. On this side of redemption, we're able to see that God's justice is good and perfect, that it's meant to, be, meant to be in that way, and that it is sin that covers our eyes from seeing his glory and seeing the sin that perpetuates this brokenness in this world. And God has revealed himself to us perfectly, so all of us are left without excuse. And so God's justice is absolute in that way. And lastly, faith. The death and resurrection of Christ shapes the way that we understand our faith. As a rich man and Abraham have their exchange, the rich man pleads that if a dead man were to show up, if a dead person showed up in my house, then my family will repent, so please send him. But Abraham responds and says, no, look to Moses and the prophets or the scripture, the word of God, God's revelation. Look to those things. And as the rich man pleads again, Abraham says, if they don't hear God's word, they won't be convinced, even if someone were to rise from the dead. And this is the clarity and the sufficiency of God's work and God's word for us that God has initiated with us as we remind one another each week that through creation and through revealing himself to us in his word and through his son, God has given us all that we need to know to know him and to be saved and to receive his help. You see, the rich man's faith was based on his circumstances. Going back to the fact that this rich man had the luxury to choose to live life in his way, he chose not to repent or to hear God's word, but to rather to choose his own comfort. He was surrounded by his comfort and his exuberant spending on food, apparently. And he was just, just so grasped, so gripped with satisfying himself. And it isn't until it's too late that he starts to plead and to beg. And even then, not for forgiveness or repentance, but a change of just his current circumstances. And while we know much less about the poor man, Lazarus, and he doesn't have any dialogue here, but what we do know is that he's characterized by his name, that God has helped. God has helped him. Our faith must be like Lazarus. And I'll clarify that in that we have no part in it. God helps us. God reveals himself to us. God initiates with us. We, in our faith, we simply respond to what God has revealed to us in humility, repenting of our sins, and trusting 
that God will fulfill his promises. And so the example of faith that is seen through Lazarus is one that is just, it's, it's obedient and that's it. We have no part in it. It's God. God calls us through a seemingly very ordinary method. It's not by lightning storm or fire. It's not a voice in the wind. God primarily calls us to himself through his word, through the Bible. It seems ordinary because it's become so accessible for us. We have it on an app. We have it in multiple copies with multiple translations. But it contains the truth of our source of life and hope. And so I'm not sure that I've done enough explanation or had enough time to satisfy our need for a perfect answer. What does it mean Jesus descended into hell? The third day he rose again from the dead. Logically, scientifically, I don't have a perfect satisfactory answer for you. But what we did cover today is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that the line points to ultimately reshapes the way that we view and understand humility, justice, and faith. And as we reorient our lives around this truth, we come to realize over and over again, every time we remind ourselves that it is God's grace that draws us near to him in all these ways. It's God's grace that causes us to have a hunger and thirst for his word. And we look to the cross because it is the greatest evidence of grace that Jesus, God himself, humbled himself and became a man, was obedient to the point of death, even a humiliating, terrible death on a cross. Abraham, in verse 31 of our text, says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's grace that we do hear Moses and the prophets, that we do hear God's word. It's grace that the word of God points to Christ in every which way, wherever we turn to. And if that wasn't already more than enough, it's absolutely grace that Jesus dies in our place, takes on the wrath reserved for us, and it's absolutely grace that he does in fact rise from the dead once and for all, once and for all, overcoming death and is now sanctifying his people. If you are a child of God, would you consider to reorient your life around death, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it would shape your hearts, that we would live as his people as an overflow of his grace. We talk about it, we hear about it week to week, but that we would really shape our hearts that we would allow the Holy Spirit to work in that way. And if you're possibly hearing this good news of Jesus for the very first time, I encourage you to take that first step in trusting in the Lord that he's already begun with you by hearing this and he has already put before you a good and perfect work. So we seek to turn from this world and we turn to Jesus. Let's pray together.